56. Now this morning, we're going to be looking at the last of the letters to the seven churches, the letter to the church at Laodicea. And it's written to churches in Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. And while the letters were written to seven specific churches in the first century, I believe that they're absolutely just as relevant for us here today. And we know this because each of the letters ends with saying, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus is not talking only to these seven churches in the first century, but to all of the churches throughout the ages, including New Village Church this morning. So with that, let's read Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22 together. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and sob to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reproach, uh, reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God, for this glorious day that you've given us. I thank you for allowing us to gather together as your people to unite our hearts as the body of Christ as we approach your throne of grace. And I pray, Lord, this morning that you draw near to your people, that you send your spirit, because unless you send your spirit to minister to your people, Lord, we can do nothing. So I pray that you make our hearts be fertile ground today so that we may hear what the spirit has to say to your church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I want to talk with you this morning about neediness, about our need as Christians for Jesus Christ. I think back to this past Tuesday's prayer meeting. We, we hold prayer, our prayer meetings on Tuesday nights at our church, and we gather together as God's people to, to pray with each other uh, corporately as his body. And what we do is we sit around in a group and we share our prayer requests and our needs. And I remember thinking to myself last week as, as I was trying to think of something that I could request prayer for that I really don't have any needs. Now think about that for a moment. For a Christian to say, I have no needs, is antithetical to Christianity. I mean, that, that, that's not the Christian faith. You see, what, what it means to be a Christian is to be a person who's come to the end of yourself. You come to realize just how ill-equipped you are to do life on your own. You come to see yourself as needy, as desperate for Jesus Christ. What happens, though, is as Christians, even though we give lip service to our neediness, I think that oftentimes we really don't realize just how needy we are. You see, it's easy to look at our lives and, and to look at our, our prosperity, whether it be financial success or, or career success or relational success or even, even spiritual success. You see, we look at our prosperity and it's lulled us to sleep. 
It's lulled us to sleep thinking that we're less needy than we really are. And that's what, be, that's what happens when you become prosperous. You start to think that you're sufficient to do life on your own. And you become complacent. And that's exactly what was, what was going on in the church at Laodicea. You see, the problem with the church at Laodicea is that it had become complacent. Look with me at verse 17. It says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Now you see, they, they wouldn't say that out loud, but it's what they were thinking. You see, the fact of the matter is, when things go well for us, our, our tendency is to become self-satisfied, and we become complacent. Now, the complacency, believe it or not, what it, what it means is, it means to, uh, it's a, a sense of smugness. It's uh, an uncritical satisfaction with oneself or one's achievements. So when you become complacent, what that means is you're self-satisfied. And our tendency, especially when things are going well for us, is, is to think that we don't need Jesus anymore. We, we're fine to do life on our own. Now, we would never say that. We might not even be thinking that, but it's going on subconsciously. We, we may not even realize it's happening, but it, it just sort of, sort of happens. And the problem is that Jesus is letting us know here that he sees through the facade. He sees inside of our hearts. He really knows what's going on. Look with me at verse 15. It says, I know your works. What that means is while we may be fooling ourselves, we're not fooling Jesus. And all too often, it's only when our lives get turned on their heads, when, when all of the things that we're counting on start to evaporate, it's only then that we realize our need for Jesus Christ. And because we're blind to our true spiritual condition, we must always rely on Christ through his word and his spirit to guide us. And Jesus shows us three things about complacency in this letter to the church at Laodicea. He shows us three things. He shows us the cause of our complacency, he shows us the consequences of complacency. And finally, he shows us the cure. So those are the three things that we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the cause of complacency, the consequences of complacency, and the cure. So the cause of complacency in my life and in your life is not our prosperity, but spiritual blindness. See, complacency is only a symptom of what's really going on. Now, why do I say that? Look at me again at, at, at verse 17. It says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. See, we become complacent because we're blind. We're, we're unaware of our weaknesses and our, our flaws and our sins and our needs before God. That's why Jesus says in the middle of the verse, not realizing. What he's saying is you don't realize how you really are. You think you're one way, but you're really another. You think that you're okay, but the truth is you're not okay. We're not okay. What Jesus is telling us is that if we think we're okay to do life on our own, that we're okay to do life without him, we're deceiving ourselves. We're self-deceived. You see, the truth is, whether we realize it or not, we are totally dependent on God for everything. Even the most mundane, insignificant things in our lives, we're totally dependent on the grace of Almighty God. And that's true for every single one of us. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, And what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Job chapter 12, verse 10, we read, In his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. 
So if you're sitting in your seat breathing right now, and I hope that everyone, everyone is, uh, it's only by the grace of God. Your very next breath is dependent on his grace. And what I want you to realize is that's true for every single one of us. So when you're out and about or, or even in church and, and you're surrounded by other, other believers, it's, it's easy to look at everyone else and feel insecure because there, so many of us look like we have our lives together. But the fact is we don't. None of us have our lives together. It's a facade. What Jesus is saying here is that the human heart is desperate and needy for God. The problem is we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're not. See, we fooled ourselves into thinking that somehow we've got our act together, that, that we're okay to do life on your own. And if we actually think that, if we actually do think that we're okay to do life on our own, we're, what Jesus is saying is that we're blind to reality. Now, the reason why I say it's, it's spiritual blindness and not, and not physical blindness is if we look back at verse 17, we see that Jesus, he's not talking about literal poverty or, or literal nakedness. He's talking about the condition of our hearts. So the fact is, if we think that we can do life on our own, we've touched, we, or we've lost touch with the reality of the Christian faith. We've lost touch with reality. And despite our blindness, Jesus is saying here that he knows what's really going on in the deepest recesses of our hearts. See, the reality is, Christianity, it's the faith of the weak. It's the faith of the broken. It's the faith of the needy. It's the faith of, of a people who know that they have nothing to offer God. It's the faith of, of people who know that they're completely bankrupt in the sight of a holy and righteous God. And we admit it. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means to admit that we're aware, we're weak, and we're, we're needy, and we're completely lost without him. So if that's what Christianity is, if, if it's the faith of the broken, the faith of the poor, the faith of the needy, why does Jesus tell us to buy something from them? That's kind of odd, isn't it? Let's look at verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and sob to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So first he tells us that we're poor, totally dependent on him and have nothing. But if that's true, how can he tell us to buy from him? How can he tell us to buy something from him? What I want you to notice here is he doesn't tell us what to buy these things with. And that's the irony of the Christian faith. That's the irony of Christianity. What we bring to Jesus is absolutely nothing. What you bring to the table, what you bring to him to buy these things with is absolutely nothing. He tells us to come with him, come to him with empty pockets, in an empty wallet, you come to him and say, Lord, here's all that I have. I have nothing to offer you. And when you do that, when you come to him in complete humility, complete dependence, complete brokenness, and admit that you're completely bankrupt before him, he says to you, you have everything you need. That's what Jesus is telling us here. And verse 18 is actually a reference to Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. It says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy, come and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. See, the problem is, all too often what we do is we come to him with the money of our own strength, our own power, our own accomplishments, and our own performance. But the problem is, if we try to come to him with anything, any, any merit at all, 
we always come up short. That's what he's telling the Laodiceans here. He's telling them that what they see as prosperity is not prosperity at all. It's, it's really, it's utterly worthless. So how do we know if we've fallen into a state of complacency? How, how, how do we know? We know that we've slid, slid into a state of complacency by the level of intimacy that we have with Jesus. Let's look at verse 20. It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. See, Jesus is talking here about having an intimate relationship with him. That's the picture that we're getting here. We're getting a picture of sitting down and having a meal with Jesus, which is a very intimate thing. In his book, A Praying Life uh, by Paul Miller, which is a book that I highly recommend. It's, it's probably one of the best books that I've ever read on prayer. It's called A Praying Life. Paul Miller says this, and I quote, Our best times together as a family are at dinner. At home, after a meal, we push aside our dishes and we linger together over coffee or hot chocolate. We have no particular agenda. We simply enjoy one another. Listening, talking, laughing. If you've experienced the same thing with with either good friends or with family, you know it's a little touch of heaven. End quote. So the picture that we get of sharing a meal is a picture of intimacy. And the readers in the church at Laodicea would have recognized this. They would, they would have understood this because in the culture at that time, a meal was a very, very intimate thing. If we think back to the Last Supper, we, we get a picture of Jesus sitting with his disciples. Uh, this is what many theologians or scholars call the, the farewell discourse. It's the last meal that Jesus is going to have with his disciples. And that's one of the most intimate pictures we get in all of Scripture. You see, the church at Laodicea had lost its intimacy with Jesus Christ. And we know this because Jesus is outside of the church. So it's his church, and he's outside, standing at the door and knocking. They've lost their intimacy with him. So how do we gauge our level of intimacy with Jesus? I think there's two ways. There's two ways that we can gauge our level of intimacy. The first way is our prayer life, and the second way is our church life. So the first way that we can gauge our level of intimacy with Jesus is by looking at our prayer life. In his book, The Prodigal God, Tim Keller talks about three levels of prayer. Three levels. The first level is praying is if you're talking to a business associate. So think about that for a moment. How would you have a, a conversation with a business associate? It's probably cold. It's, it's distant. Maybe it's a little guarded. There's not a lot of real sharing going on there. It's, it's not deep at any level. Okay, that's the first level. The second level is having a conversation with a friend. So it's more intimate. It's not as cold as talking to a business associate, but, but it may not, you may not be willing to share the deepest recesses of your heart. You may still be holding things back. That's the second level of prayer. The third level of, pr- of prayer is, is if you're talking to your spouse. Okay, so how would you talk to your spouse? It's, it's the most intimate the conversation moves below the surface. You're, you're giving your heart to them. You're sharing the intimate details and recesses of your life. They know you and you know them on a very, very intimate level. So Keller says this, quote, the deeper the love relationship, the more the conversation heads towards the personal, towards affirmation and praise. The prayers of, the self-suff- of self-sufficient people are almost entirely taken up with recitations of needs and petitions, not, sp- not spontaneous, joyful praise. In fact, there are many people who, 
for all their religiosity, don't have much of a prayer life at all unless things are not going well for them. Then they may devote themselves to a great deal of it until things get better. This reveals that their main goal is to control their environment rather than to delve into an intimate relationship with the God who loves them. End quote. So when you commune with Jesus through prayer, is it only when the chips are down? Is it, is it only when things are not going well for you? Or do you come to him with everything, even the most smallest, most seemingly insignificant needs that you have? What does your prayer life look like? Does it resemble a conversation with a business associate, a friend, or your spouse? So that's the first way that we can gauge our level of intimacy with Jesus, through prayer. The second way is through our church life. And I love the testimony that our, our brother Mike shared with us this morning because that's exactly what, what, the picture he gave is exactly what I'm going to talk about. So the second way that we can gauge our level of intimacy with, intimacy with Jesus is looking at our church life. Keep in mind here that the letter written to Laodicea is, is a letter written to the church. It's written to the body of Christ. It's written to a community of believers. Now Jesus is standing outside of the door and knocking on the door of the church. See, we come together at church, and, and one of the ways that we commune with God, one of the ways that we experience intimacy with God is through intimate relationships with each other. Turn with me quickly to 1 John chapter 4. It's, uh, if you just flip a few pages to the left, it's not that far from where we are now. We're going to look at 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to read through verses 4, uh, I'm sorry, 7 through 12. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So what immediately jumps out at you here? What do you notice immediately that seems a little bit out of place? See, John starts out by telling us to, to love one another and, and whoever loves is born of God. Whoever doesn't love doesn't know God. He talks about God's love for us and, and how we ought to, also ought to love one another. And then out of nowhere, he says, no one has ever seen God. Doesn't that seem out of place? John's saying, love, 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 love. No one has ever seen God. You see, what John is telling us here is that one of the ways that we experience intimacy with Jesus is through intimate relationships with other Christians with the church. So if you want to see God, if you want to feel God, be intimate with one another. Share your lives with each other. You see, we experience, one of the ways we experience the love of God is in relationships with the body of Christ. It's in the love relationships of the Christian community. See, when we come together in prayer, when, when we encourage one another, when we share in each other's trials and tribulations as, as, as we did with our brother Mike here, 
that was such a wonderful testimony. When we cry together, when we laugh together, when we, we're experiencing intimacy with Jesus, we do this by having intimacy with each other. See, the same spirit that unites us to Christ is the same spirit that unites us to one another. The same Holy Spirit indwells each and every one of us, those who have repented and put our trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. So an easy way to know that we lack intimacy with Jesus is if we don't have much of a prayer life and we don't have much of a church life. So that's the cause of complacency. Now we're going to look at the consequences. So the second thing, the second thing we're going to look at is what happens when we become complacent. What's, what's the consequences of that? And I think that there are two things here that we're going to look at. So the first consequence of, of complacency and, and self-sufficiency is uselessness. That's one of the consequences. Look, look with me at what it says here starting in verse 15. It says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot which is just a way of saying that he'd rather you be cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now this is one of the most misunderstood or mis misinterpreted passages of the Bible. Most of the time when I hear someone teach on this passage, you'll hear them say something like this. Jesus, Jesus either wants you to be on fire for him, which is, which is hot, or hate him, which is cold, but he doesn't want you riding the fence which is lukewarm. He wants you to take a stand. So either, either be for him or be against him. But I want you to realize this morning, that's not what's going on there at all. What this verse is actually making reference to, believe it or not, is the, is the city's water supply, the, the water supply in Laodicea. What it's doing is it's comparing the people in the church to the city's lukewarm water supply. One scholar puts it this way. He says, the water in nearby Hierapolis was supplied by medicinal hot springs and in nearby Colossae by a cold mountain stream. However, the waters of Laodicea were supplied via an aqueduct and brought into the city through pipes, and by the time the water reached the city, it was tepid, considered undrinkable, not useful for any meaningful purpose. So cold and hot water both represent something positive. See, cold water represents it's refreshing in the heat, Hot water is a tonic when you're chilly. I, I think my wife, I think back to last Saturday night, my wife and I were at our son's football game, and it was really a nice thing. We were, we were um, it was Saturday night, and we were at the high school field, and it's a, it's a beautiful stadium under the lights. The problem was it was freezing. Does anybody remember last Saturday night how cold it was? So we're sitting there in, in our jackets with our hat on and our gloves under a blanket, and we're sipping on hot chocolate. And I can't, <laughs> I can't tell you how, how good that hot chocolate tasted. It, it, it was soothing when we were cold. See, what Jesus is saying here is he'd rather that we be healing like hot water or refreshing like cold water, but instead, when we become complacent, we become like the Laodicean water supply, which was lukewarm and utterly useless. You see, when you become complacent, when you lack intimacy with Jesus, we become useless for ministry. We become useless when we rely on our, ourselves. We, we, we're not able to minister. Now, why is that? The reason is, you and I are called to a work that we could never do on our own. Namely, the spread of the gospel to a lost and fallen world. See, we're the hands and feet of Jesus. We are his ambassadors here on 
earth. And when we rely on our own strength, when we rely on our own power to accomplish that mission, we become impotent. We become powerless. We become useless. You see, we could never accomplish that mission on our own. The power we need to complete the mission is power that Christ himself gives us. I'm going to read real quick from Matthew chapter 28. I'm not going to ask you to turn there. This is the Great Commission, very familiar verses. In verse 18 it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, the reason why we can fulfill the Great Commission is that all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. He promises to be with us as we're fulfilling our mission. So if that's true, and it is, that means when we try to complete that mission in our own power, we are useless. We could never do it. We must rely on Jesus and the strength and power that he provides us. So the power that you have, the power that we have, comes from an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And when we lack intimacy, when our, when our prayer life is suffering and our, our church life is suffering, when we don't have that intimacy with him, we lose access to that power. See, the, the book of Revelation, it starts out with, with an encounter. See, John, the Apostle John, is now in exile on the island of Patmos. And it's probably been anywhere from 50 to maybe 60 years since he had seen Jesus, since Jesus was resurrected and, and ascended. So here's John, and, and now he's encountered, he's face to face with Jesus, but not Jesus as he remembered him. It's Jesus in all his glory. And I just want to read from that passage just so we have a description. This is from Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 12. It says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now, how did John react to seeing this, this Jesus in, in, in his glorified state? It says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. See, John was so awestruck now, I don't want us to focus on the details there, okay? What I want us to focus on is the fact that the Jesus that John saw was awesome, okay? He was powerful. And this is the Jesus that we draw our strength from. This is the Jesus that promises to be with us to the end of the age. This is the Christ that we must draw our power from as we seek to complete his mission here on earth. So that's the first consequence of of complacency. The first consequence is uselessness. The second consequence is what Jesus says here, right, in, right here in verse 19. Read with me. It says this, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So the second consequence of complacency 
is discipline. And the key to understand what's going on here is to understand what motivates his discipline, when Jesus disciplines us. You see, when he disciplines us, when he disciplines his saints, it's not discipline motivated by, by anger, but by love. Look again at verse 19. It says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. See, what motivates Jesus when he disciplines us is not anger, but love. Why is that? How do we know this? See, Jesus, we know that Jesus loves us when he disciplines us because he knows that we can't do life on our own. It's not discipline motivated by anger at our disobedience, but rather by the fact that he loves us and cares for us, and he knows that without him, we could do nothing. He knows what's best for us. He knows that if he left us to our own devices, we'd utterly destroy ourselves. And we see this all throughout the gospel accounts. You see, the reason why Jesus tells us that in order to be his disciple, we must give up everything, it's not because he doesn't want us to have everything or have anything. He knows, though, that, that if we fixate our hearts, if our hearts are focused on anything but him, we'll utterly destroy ourselves. We'd be on the road to destruction. See, there are two roads that Jesus talks about in the Gospels. One is wide and easy, and one that's narrow and hard. See, the wide and easy gate is filled with complacent people. It's filled with people who are attempting to reach God in the strength of their own power, with their own accomplishments, with their own merit, with their own performance. And that ultimately leads to destruction. You see, but the narrow way is hard. It's hard because we think we know better than Jesus does. We think that we know what we need more than he does. You see, in our sin, we want to be the ones in control, and that's why he disciplines us. It's, it's course correction. It's to get us back on the right road. See, Jesus is the narrow gate. The way to God is narrow. There's only one way to God. It's only through Jesus Christ. And you can't get any more narrow than that. There's no other way but through Jesus, and the way is hard. So if you're in Christ, if, if you've repented of your sin and you've turned in faith to Jesus for your salvation, he disciplines you not because he's mad at you, but because he loves you and cares about you and doesn't want to let you destroy yourself. There's a big difference. Big difference. So now that we know, what the, now that we know the cause of complacency and, and we know the consequences, we're going to turn to the cure. So what's the cure? We see the solution right here in verse 19. It says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. The cure for complacency is zealous repentance. Zealous repentance. See, when you repent, and I realize repent is another word that's, that's misunderstood. It, it sounds a little scary, but, but when we repent, what that literally means is to change your mind. It's to change your mind. So when Jesus calls us to repent, what he's telling us to do is to change our minds. And when we change our minds, the result is that we turn and go in another direction. So he's telling us to change our minds and turn away from sin. To change our minds and turn away from complacency. To change our minds and turn away from the self-salvation project that we're currently working on. Change our minds and realize that we're not rich, we're not prosperous, we're not capable of doing life on our own. He wants us to change our minds and realize that, in fact, we are desperately 
desperately needy. He's telling us to change our minds and realize that we are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. But here's the beautiful thing. Here's what's beautiful about Jesus. He doesn't leave us holding the bag. He gives us what we need. Let's read again in verse 18. It says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and sob to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So when you come to Jesus, when you, when you repent of your sin and you trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you, he gives us everything that we need. So he tells us that we're poor in spirit, but we come to him and he makes us rich. He tells us that we're naked, but he clothes us with, with white garments, which, which symbolize purity. He tells us that we're blind, but then he gives us salve to anoint our eyes so that we may see. Jesus himself provides for every single need that we have, but only if we change our minds about who we think we are and turn to him in faith and recognize who he is and what he's done. So the solution to complacency is simple. It's, it's repentance, to change your mind and to turn away from the things that, that, that we're clinging to in this life and turn to Jesus, to embrace Jesus. But the problem is it's hard to do that when we're still holding on to our sin. It's hard to return and embrace Jesus when we're hanging on to our sin. I heard a preacher once describe repentance this way. He says this, When I come home from work at night, most of the time I'll, I'll have my work bag in one hand and I'll have my lunch bag and, and my keys and my phone in the other hand. I'll walk in my door and the, and the kids come running up to me to give me a hug. But the problem is I can't turn and embrace my kids while I'm still holding on to all this stuff. The first thing I have to do is let go and let, all, let go of all this stuff, and only then can I turn and embrace my children. See, it's the same thing with repentance. We have to let go of our sin. We have to let go of these things first, and then we can turn and embrace Jesus. And his spirit gives us the power to do that. God grants us repentance. The Christian life is a repenting life. See, we sin and we turn back to Jesus. We sin and we turn back to Jesus. It's not a one-time event. Our walk goes something like this when we're Christians. We, we repent, we turn to Jesus in faith, and we start to follow him. And then we look up and we realize he's not standing in front of us. Maybe he's over here. So what do we do? We repent, we turn, we follow him again. We look up and we see, wait a second, he's not standing over here. He's over this way. So we need to turn again. We repent and follow Jesus. That's the Christian life. It's a life of repentance. The problem is, what's our natural tendency when we sin? Our natural tendency is to run and hide. It's to run away from Jesus rather than to run to him. But I want you to realize this morning, saints, not, there's no hiding from Jesus. He told us that back, this back in verse, uh, verse 15. He says, I see your works. I know your works. He knows exactly what's going on in our hearts. So when we sin, instead of running away from him, run to him. He stands at, he's standing at the door. He's knocking. He wants to come in and share a meal with us and have an intimate relationship with us. But we can only experience that through repentance. So if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, if you've turned from your sin, if you've repented and placed, it in, placed your trust in Jesus Christ alone, my question for you is this. Will you change your mind 
Will you change your mind about your complacency? Will you change your mind about sin? Will you repent and follow Jesus? Will you turn to him? Will you recognize that our lives as Christians is a life of repentance? See, the fact that Jesus gives us everything we need should encourage us. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, however, if you haven't repented of your sin, if you haven't turned to Jesus in faith, my question for you is this. Will you change your mind? Will you change your mind and turn to Jesus? Will you repent of your sin and and, and your efforts to save yourself by your own strength, by the power of your own merit and your own accomplishments? Will you change your mind about that and turn to him in faith? Will you cast off your complacency? Will you come to Jesus in all humility and say, Lord, I need you, but I have nothing to offer. Give me your gold refined by fire. Clothe me in your robes of perfect righteousness. Give me salve to anoint my eyes so that I may see. And we see here in these verses that he promises that he will. He promises that he will. So if you're here today and you're not sure where you stand before God, if you're not sure about your relationship with Jesus Christ, I have good news for you. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your glorious gospel. I thank you for the grace that you've given us. I thank you for the fact that we can have an open door, that we can have an intimate relationship with you through the blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that this be ever-present on our minds, that we live a life of repentance. And we know that, that we cannot even repent unless you grant it by your grace. So, Father, we come humbly before you with all of our needs, with all of our, 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 our wants, with all of our necessities, and we lay them, out your, lay them at your feet and ask you to fill us with your Spirit and your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.